0: When a church is looking for a new minister, there's generally four things that people are looking for. They're looking for someone who's going to be a good preacher. They're looking for somebody who's really pastorally caring and visits their parishioners often in their homes. They're looking for somebody who's good with administration and so everything gets kept in order. And they're looking for somebody who's going to be really good with the young people and can help out with Sunday school and youth groups and all that sort of stuff. And it's generally believed that if you get someone who meets one of those criteria, your church will generally stay about the same. If you manage to get somebody who meets two of those criteria, your church might even grow a little bit and everybody will be pretty happy. If you're lucky enough to find somebody who meets three of those criteria, well, your church is going to grow exponentially and it won't be too long until you'll probably notice that your church has become the biggest one in town. And... If you find someone who meets all four of those criteria, whatever you do, don't employ him because he's a freak. (laughs) The old model for doing church was the minister did it and the congregation turned up. Uh, But that's not the biblical model and that's not what we're about here at Bush Disciples. The biblical model is the church is a bunch of Christians who meet together and we all have different spiritual gifts, skills and abilities. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, all of us are in ministry together. And I hope that's the way that that we see ourselves here, that all of us are in ministry together. We don't all have the same gifts, we don't all have to do the same things, but all of us will be involved in some way in serving God together. And I believe one of the biggest barriers to church growth is the continued dependence of the church on too few of its members. And this can happen either because the members of a church don't step up because they feel inadequate or or they feel unqualified or some of us may just not want to do anything or it can also be put back onto the leaders of that church It can also happen when the leaders of the church aren't very giving in permission for other people to be doing stuff. And so the whole church doesn't become actively involved in ministry. One of the benefits of of being a small church is you don't really have a lot of structure and organisation and you don't need to to have it taken over. But as a church gets bigger and bigger, most churches will need to have more and more structure and more and more position recognition, if you like, for it to keep functioning. Now, I don't know how big that church in Jerusalem was when they appointed seven, seven additional church leaders to serve, but it must have been pretty big by that stage. We're told several times that the Lord added to their number daily. Who, who would love to see this church growing daily? Now, you know, if a church grows daily, a church doesn't have to be running for many days for it to get quite large, does it? Um, And we're actually told that uh, 3,000 were saved at Pentecost. In chapter 4, we hear that the number of those saved came to 5,000. Now, I don't know whether that was the new total, the new total of 5,000, or whether uh, it was an additional 5,000. Um, But the one thing is for sure, they they said 5,000 men, so you have to add to that the women and children as well. And Sorry. It wasn't even God. (laughs) So we don't really know how big the church was. Certainly it was in its thousands. Although a lot of those who had been saved may have been there for the, for the religious um, celebrations that had just been happening in Jerusalem and they may have since gone home to, to other towns. But I think it would still be safe to say that their number would have been in their thousands and possibly in the tens of thousands. And something that happens when a church gets large is people invariably separate out into their common groups. And that's something that can make a large church seem attractive to some people, but I believe it also has a negative aspect to it. So, for example, in a large church, young people will generally just hang out with the young people because there's enough people there to be able to have youth services and so the young people don't go to the normal service, they just go to the youth service. And um, so they don't end up really mixing with the older folk. And some people find that really attractive. Because the older folk will be going, oh, good we don't have to put up with that loud, noisy music. And the young people will go, oh, thank goodness we can have some decent music. And and people separate out into their groups that they like to be in and, and people that are just like them. Now, that can be attractive to some people and it makes the church grow sometimes. But I also believe that there's something wonderful and something godly about when young people and old people get together. When the young people have a Bible study with older people, and the older people are able to share from their experience and their years of learning and from their acquired wisdom, and yet and the young people can share their youth and enthusiasm and their vigor and their excitement in Jesus, and that starts rubbing up on the old people. There's something wonderful when young people and old people get together. And I think that's God, God's that's how God wants it to be. Likewise, in a bigger church, businessmen may tend to stick together. The farmers will just meet with the farmers. The young mothers tend to stick together. And we'll find, just as there are social classes out in the world, in our society, social classes end up forming within the church. Now, if we separated out into our social classes here, we'd be all just talking to ourselves. Because we're small. And it's never an intention, but often in a larger church some will invariably end up feeling neglected or unwanted because they're trying to break into a group of people and they just cannot break in because they're not the same. And so they end up feeling as if they're a second-class Christian or simply as if they just don't belong. And there's nothing new about this. It happened in the church in Acts. Most of the church in Jerusalem, not surprisingly, were Jewish Christians. But even so, they had formed into two classes of Jewish Christians. There were what were called the Hellenists, and then there was the Hebrews. Now, what these are is they were two different language groups. They were broken into two language groups. See, a lot of Jews had become what is known as the diaspora. That means they had dispersed away from Jerusalem And they'd gone off into other areas. And over time, they found they had no use for their Hebrew language because nobody out there understood it. So they didn't speak it. In fact, when I learned Hebrew at Bible college, you'd think that I was trying to clear phlegm out of my throat for the couple of months that I was trying to. (laughs) Hebrew just is not an easy language to learn. Uh, I was talking to some of the South Africans not so long ago, I don't know if it was Yark or whether it might have been Adra, I'm not sure because so it's got a lot of the guttural sounds in it but some of the sounds that they use which in Afrikaans, that I, I just can't make those sounds. I, I just can't do it. Um, and so there were two groups of Jews. There was those who had left off the Hebrew and taken up the more universal language of Greek and there's those who spoke Hebrew. And so when they got together as a church, they would gravitate into these two groups, the Hebrew speaking and the Greek speaking. And that's fine, but not if it causes divisions. Now We might even find a little bit of that here sometimes too. And um, sometimes the Afrikaans-speaking folk get together and speak in Afrikaans. But I've noticed that as, as soon as one of us English-speaking people come and join the group, they revert to English because we can understand English. And, and they know that if they continue speaking Afrikaans when, when an English speaker is in that little group, then that person's going to feel excluded. Is that right? That's what I've noticed and I'm very thankful that that we are like this, that they can get together and speak Afrikaans, but when a a non-Afrikaans speaker comes into the group, instantly they become inclusive and speak in English. Wonderful, wonderful. So it's fine if divisions don't form, but the problem is, in this church in Acts, divisions did form. These were days when there was no pension, And so the church used to care for its widows. They'd provide them with food. But it wasn't long until the Greek speaking Jewish Christians reckoned that the Hebrew speaking widows were getting better fed than their widows. And so they had a bit of a grumble about this. And so the twelve apostles came up with a cunning plan. Their role as apostles was to preach and pray. And so it wouldn't be right for them to take up all of their time overseeing the day-to-day running of the food bank. But obviously something needed to be done. Guess what? There were other people in the church who were perfectly capable of dealing with this issue and so seven men were chosen as leaders to take care of this issue and I'm going to say and presumably other issues as well. So that's what this reading was about. And coming out of this reading, I want to share with you nine principles for church life. Firstly, ministry is not the job of just one person. Now I think we've already covered that. Christian ministry is the ministry of the whole people of God working together in the power of the Holy Spirit. The second principle of church life is the fluid nature of church structure. They didn't have a set structure from the beginning. But as the need arose, the structure of the church evolved to meet that need. Now that's a bit different to how a lot of us perceive church today. We've grown up with a long history of churches and and a long history of a variety of church structures. And it's very easy for us to come to the understanding that a certain structure is how all churches should be structured. And so when we were first starting up Bush Disciples, that was the first question quite a number of folk, always church folk, would ask me, well, what's your structure? Who are you aligned with? What's the structure? How how many elders are you going to have? Where are you going to have this? And they just set all of these this enormous expectation of a structure in front of us and said, How is it? Are you at this structure or this structure? But the whole point of it is, there was no set structure. Some of us may have firmly said in our mind that there should be no structure. But you know, as I read the New Testament, I find a church that does have structure, but it's also a church that evolves as it grows and as needs and circumstances change, Different people are appointed to different positions as they are needed, not simply to have positions for the sake of having positions. The third principle I find is all ministry is spiritual in nature. Do you understand that? All ministry is spiritual in nature. You know, some of us may feel that our service, our ministry isn't valuable because it's it's very practical stuff. But I want you to understand all ministry is spiritual in nature. The person who bakes the scones for smoke, that ministry is spiritual in nature. The person who goes and checks the toilets and flushes down the unflushed parcels that are left there at the end of the service. That's spiritual. That's a spiritual service. I'm seeing a few of you laughing at that. That's something that happens every Sunday. Now, the need that arose here could have been seen as an essentially a hands-on or administrative of duty, but it had spiritual importance in God's plan. Now, because of this, any recognised positions of leadership within the church have a requirement of spiritual maturity. The apostles said to the church, they said, look, you pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. What they're doing is they're describing spiritual maturity. And anyone who we select for a position of leadership should be of good repute, be filled with the Spirit and be filled with wisdom. Churches get themselves into all sorts of troubles when they put put somebody into leadership um, without taking those things into account. Um, When they put someone in in leadership who who is not wise or someone who is not of good repute or someone who is not a spiritual person, not filled with the Holy Spirit. So, for example, a church might need a treasurer now, what's the first thing that a lot of us think? Okay, well, so-and-so is an accountant. He's going to be our treasurer. Well, that accountant might not might not even believe in God. But I've seen accountants like that being the treasurers of churches. Some accountants may not be of good repute. Um, accountants, to be of good repute, that means you have to be thoroughly honest. And most accountants are actually trained to try and work around the truth in some way. Um, now I'm not just picking on accountants I could pick on anything Uh, I know I dealt with a church once who um, had a building project and so of course they, they had a retired builder in their congregation right he's the one who's going to oversee and run our church building project guess what I've talked to that fellow he doesn't believe that Jesus even rose from the dead and years later they still haven't built their church I wonder why Leadership in the church should never be based solely on our physical skills and abilities. Leaders must be of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Fifthly, according to these guidelines, the whole church decided together who were the suitable candidates. The selection criteria was set down by the apostles, right? This is what we're looking for. They have to be of good repute. They have to be full of the spirit and full of wisdom. But it wasn't the apostles who chose them. It was the whole congregation. The whole, and why is that? Well, it's because the congregation knows. And the, and the Lord speaks through the whole church. So they were the ones who were to decide who best met those criteria. The sixth principle is church leadership is to be done in God's strength. They chose the seven men and said, go your hardest, do your best. Is that what they did? No, that's not what they did. They chose the seven men and then the apostles laid hands on them and they prayed for them. And in the Bible, when when they lay hands on somebody and pray for them, What they're praying is for God to fill them with his strength and with his power. And so church leadership is to be carried out not because we're so good at it, but because God gives us strength. Our Sunday school teachers and helpers do it, not in their own strength, but because God gives them strength. A worship leader doesn't have to be the best singer in the world. A worship leader just has to have God giving them strength and helping them to lead. In fact, one of the best best worship leaders that I've ever heard cannot hold a note ever, Anne Harley, if any, any of you know Anne Harley. She's the most joyful, wonderful worship leader that I've ever met and she cannot sing in tune. Does anyone disagree with that who knows her? No, no. Now, I hope that this gives some of you guys encouragement because you yeah, know you might feel sometimes, well, I don't know, well, Michael's there and he's talking about how this is the ministry of the whole people of God and I can't do anything. And so you're sort of thinking, well, I'm not. Where would I fit in? Can't do this, I can't do that. But this is the whole point. We just have to be willing to make ourselves available and God gives us the strength and God gives us the ability to be able to serve him in ways that we could have never dreamed. Seventh principle is discontent must be addressed. There was trouble brewing in that church in Acts and and if it was left unaddressed then that church... Could have been split right down the middle. But when the need arose, the leadership saw a solution. They put more leadership in place to deal with it. And what happened? They dealt with this. This is strange. It all come out of this grumbling. All of this grumbling happened. But God tends to use things that we see as bad. He uses it for his good. True. We're told that the word grew and the church grew. Now that's a phrase that, that we're going to find several times as we work through this book of Acts. The word grew and the church grew. So that can be our eighth principle if you like. When the word grew, the church grew. And that's what we have to do is we concentrate on the word. We don't have to concentrate on 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 our own plans and and humanistic ideas of, of ways of doing things and how can we become attractive to the world. We don't have to worry about that. We continue preaching the word. And we continue acting in the word of God. When the word grew, the church grew. When the word grew, the church grew. When the word grew, the church grew. And I just find that phrase right throughout the Book of Acts just a wonderful thing to reflect on. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we can say that of this church? If when we look back after a, after a year, we go, "Hey, we all started getting excited about the Word of God, and, and look what's happened—the church has grown." And then a couple of years later, it was a, well, even though the church had grown, it it didn't stop there. We, we continued to get into the word of God and, and we could see the way that the word of God was changing our lives and so we went with that and the word grew. And what happened? The church grew. Finally, number nine, don't limit yourself. Stephen was chosen as a church leader basically to make sure that the food bank was shared out fairly. Now on Good Friday we shared the story of of Stephen. God took Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit and one verse later in verse 8 we read and Stephen full of grace and power was doing wonders and signs among the people. Stephen wasn't just an administrator. When we do things in God's strength instead of our own, there are no limits to what God can and will do. When we make ourselves available to God in the little things and we allow God to start working through us in his strength, God steps in and he uses us for the big things too. So there you go. Nine principles for church life. Now, if I, was a, if I was a good preacher, I probably would have tried to find a tenth one because we always like to round things off. Um, sorry, only got nine. Uh, but I reckon that's probably enough. The, heading, the little heading that I wrote down at the top of my sermon for this message was Chosen to Serve. Chosen to serve. That was the heading. And in the reading we heard about seven men who were chosen. But how about you? How has God chosen you to serve? Because there's one thing that I have absolutely no doubt about. God has chosen you to serve. I'm as sure of that as I am sure that God has chosen me to serve. Now those gifts that God has given you, God will have you serving in different ways to what he has me serving. And it would be wrong for me to look at one of you and go, oh, why aren't you doing anything? You're not doing what I do. And it would be wrong for you to look at me and go, well, Michael, why isn't he doing such and such? We all should be doing such and such. What we have to understand is, God has chosen all of us to serve. We'll be different. Let's pray. God, how have you chosen me to serve? Lord, I'm willing to serve in whatever capacity you call me. Lord, in the areas that I serve, help me to understand that you're doing something spiritual here. And in everything that I do, help me to do it not in my own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit, and Lord, surprising, surprise us, Lord, as You do Your work through us, Lord. We read that when the when the word grew the church grew. Lord help us to love your word. Help us to preach your word. Pray this in Jesus name. Amen.